Good morning. As was mentioned, we're starting a new series this morning that finds us in the book of 1 Samuel. So you can either turn there in your Bible or in your worship guide where the scripture text is printed. And while you're doing that, let me invite you, particularly if you're visiting with us on the inside cover of your worship guide, there's a visitor card. And if you would like to fill that out and uh, drop it at the sound booth at the conclusion of the service, then... uh, There's an opportunity for us to get to know you a little bit, and also if you want to pursue coffee or lunch with any one of the pastors and sit down and learn a little bit more about the church, we would love to pursue that with you. Also, uh, while I'm throwing out a couple of announcements, you may have noticed that the downstairs is in a bit of disrepair. We've started a little bit of a renovation down there, so please excuse our appearance while we get that ultimately in shape for some very important upcoming weddings. Uh, I'll ask you to stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's Word. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not to you more than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And so Hannah is blessed with child. That child is Samuel. And beginning in 2.1, she sings her praise to God. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, and for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. Excuse me, the bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Today we begin a new sermon series on the life of David entitled, Searching for a King. 
For most of the sermon series, we will be in the book of 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel tells the story of Israel's search for a king. But even as Israel discovers and eventually thrives in many ways under King David, it awakens something nationally for Israel. That yes, something great and momentous has happened in David, but David is not... uh, He's good, but there must be someone better. He is a king who is remarkable. God has done something profound in the leadership of David, but it suddenly wakes Israel up to say, yes, David was good, but we need another David and another David who's actually better. And this is much a theme of the book of 1st Samuel, and what it challenges us to do throughout the sermon series is to, to marvel at the stories that unfolds of Israel's search for a king. It is a reminder to us that we also must be seeking the king. Of course, from our point in God's story, the true king is Jesus. David only points to him. But we're going to have to wrestle with, as we see the people of old seeking the king and searching for him and seeing God's story unfold, to what degree do we still seek the king? And right at the outset, we have to be challenged by the story of Hannah. 1 Samuel is, uh, is part of Samuel and Kings. It's this grand epic in which things change dramatically for Israel. We're right on the heels of the end of the period of Judges, in which God has raised up various tribal leaders to lead Israel as a nation. And it's been a mess. There is often someone not really righteous to lead. Those who are chosen to lead aren't necessarily great leaders. And you have the constant refrain in Judges that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. It's a time of of polytheism, of worshiping more than one God. And as you come into Samuel and Kings, uh, Israel will become a monarchy. One king will lead the people. They'll become monotheistic more than they ever have before, worshiping one God. They will become uh, enter into their golden age under David and Solomon. There's radical transformation. It's a huge book talking about a momentous period of time, and it starts with a weeping woman in the back country, the back hill country of Israel, whose significance you would think, what? how can such a big book about such big things start with such an insignificant person? And that perhaps is one of the main points or themes throughout is the surprise as God works His story through whom He is going to work to honor Himself, to glorify Himself, but also to teach so many things that God is the God of the oppressed. God is the God of those who uh, who are downtrodden and He lifts them up. And so, as we consider Hannah, the story really flows um, very simply in, in three aspects. And So first we're going to consider Hannah's plight. Secondly, we're going to consider Hannah's prayer. And third, we're going to consider uh, Hannah's praise. I didn't even plan that. I'm so impressed with myself. Hannah's plight, her prayer, and her praise. So first of all, Hannah's plight. As we enter the book of 1 Samuel, what you have to have in mind is, you know, we start talking about King David and you start to think empire and nation that has been established. And that's not really the situation as the story begins. The story begins as uh, Israel largely exists as a loosely organized uh, collection of tribes. 
right? Each tribe named for one of the twelve sons of Jacob. And there hasn't been a strong leader. And there's lots of worshiping of other gods. And it's in this situation that we meet Elkanah and his two wives, uh, Penina and Hannah. And verse 2, which happens just before the portion that we read, tells us that Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. As the story goes on, it talks about Penina receiving a double portion of food from Elkanah, the man of the house, to provide for not only Penina, but also her children, as where for Hannah, he does give a double portion, but it's simply out of love for her. There's no children that need to be fed. He's simply compassionate towards Hannah. And we see that Hannah, which actually means favored one, is the favored one of Elkanah. She is the one that he loves, but she is barren. In verse 5, it says that God has closed her womb. And as you can imagine, in a household with two wives, one bearing children and one not, that uh, and one woman being favored over another, there is not a little bit of contention. In fact, it's a good bit of a mess. Uh, Hannah receives Elkanah's love but longs for children, and Penina receives children but longs for Elkanah's love. And what lies behind the scene is not just the rivalry between two, two women, two wives. Do you notice that particularly Penina is, is not a pleasant person. She's driving this in. She's rubbing it into Hannah's life on a regular basis. Year after year, it says, Hannah has desired children and has prayed to the Lord. And yet each time they go up, interestingly, each time they go up to make sacrifices to worship Yahweh, to worship Israel's God, that's when Penina likes to drive it into Hannah. She likes to turn the screws and torment her in the midst of this. And so uh, the majority of commentators that I've been reading would agree that there is something much bigger at stake. The author is trying to communicate something much more significant than simply a rivalry between two wives as we enter the book of 1 Samuel. And it's this, it's a question of Israel at large. Penina and Hannah represent two Israelites the question is, is Israel going to go down a road of polytheism or of monotheism? Israel's history up to this point has a lot of polytheism in it. Yes, we worship Yahweh, but we also worship the other God down the street who seems a little bit more poised to meet our needs that feel very immediate. Yahweh seems not to be listening. Better to worship many gods. You have more opportunity to have your requests fulfilled than to throw all your eggs into one basket so to speak. This is the challenge for Israel as they are going to become more monotheistic, but the author is saying, coming out of the period of judges, moving into the period of monarchy, what is going to make a faithful Israelite? What is that going to look like? And to paint the picture as the story will unfold, it's beautifully done through these two figures. Is Israel going to be a Penina or is Israel going to be a Hannah? Asherah was a fertility goddess of the ancient world the Israelites were tempted to worship. And digging sites in ancient Israel have uncovered thousands of uh, small figurines. One one commentator described them as Elizabeth Taylor-like in uh, their memories and their hips because they were little clay figurines that were essentially clay prayers, invocations to the goddess Asherah that the family would be blessed with children. Uh, they would grow strong. 
The family would be enlarged. Uh, appeals for lactation, things of this nature. And you have to think, in the ancient world, when your children are really, you're not only a, um, a sign of blessing, but your entire security, right? As you get old, there's no social net that's going to take care of you. It's all bound up in your children. It's a very big deal to be barren. It's very embarrassing to be barren. And so Hannah has been suffering this plight as where Penina, particularly as she mocks Hannah as they go up to worship the Lord, probably has been engaged in a degree of polytheism. Worshipping someone, perhaps Asherah, at the same time of worshipping uh, Yahweh. And can you imagine the pressure on Hannah? Children being everything to a woman in the ancient world. And Penina, or the pressure on Hannah. If um, Penina, you can imagine weighing in on Hannah. Oh, you are going up to uh, make a sacrifice to Yahweh this year. Well, that's good. He's doing so well and good by you. Has he answered that prayer yet that you might have children? Oh, no. He loves you so much that he's closed your womb. And yet you worship. Or perhaps on a nice day, Hannah, I'm really concerned about you. Do you want me to take you to make a sacrifice to Asherah? Really, how long do you think Elkanah will love you if you continue to be childless? You're not contributing anything to the home. Eventually that will end. Let's go make a sacrifice to someone who can actually hear your prayer. Can you imagine how Anna felt saying, now I'm going to be remain faithful. My prayer will continue to be to the Lord. I pray for life and I believe that only Yahweh can give life. He is the life giver. Those of you who have made sacrifices for faithfulness to God, even despite what it may cost you, know a little bit about what Hannah was experiencing. It's it's something that anyone who's serious about discipleship in Jesus feels. A young person who refuses to accompany friends to a movie because she knows that she should not be seeing what her friends are seeing, and so declines and faces social consequences as a result. Or a father who turns down a promotion so that he will have more time to lead his kids in their faith and to teach them. A woman who does not buy all the clothes that she could so that she has more money to give to the church. Or a church that does not buy into every growth strategy that comes down the road and watches the church down the street grow exponentially. All decisions for faithfulness, all decisions made out of a desire to say, yes, I believe in Yahweh and I believe in His promises, and even though I don't really have anything that's tangible, to give evidence to that, I choose to remain faithful because I believe that at the end of the day, Yahweh is the one who shows up and all other false gods fail. This is the tension, the choice between Hannah and Penina. You realize it's not just a question about faithfulness, but if Hannah chooses to go down another road by which to obtain children, right? and Hannah is this remarkable woman who finds herself alongside the wives of the patriarchs because she's barren. Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, and how easily we can think of Sarah who says, I'm barren, Yahweh isn't coming through, take my handmaiden, take my servant so that you can have a child. 
to Abraham. Hannah does not go down any such road, but remains faithful in the midst of her own frustration. She does not appeal to Asherah for children. She will not go down a road of polytheism. What do you want? Clearly, Hannah wants a child more than anything else in the world. What do you most want in life? I knew a a gentleman at seminary when I was in seminary, and he wanted to experience God and to find peace, and God wasn't delivering to him. He just wasn't finding God in the way that he had hoped to find God, and so he chose to, he began to use drugs. And the drugs graduated in their intensity and in uh, the degree to which they consumed him and ultimately devoured him. And he finished, uh, he ended up in a program in rehab rather than finishing his program in seminary. Right? He wanted to experience God. He was after some kind of peace, but he decided Yahweh wasn't really coming through. And so he decided to worship something else. Now that's a dramatic example. Right? And so often we, particularly those living in the South in the Bible, well, we, we say, man, I pray for people like that. We, we let ourselves off the hook because that's such an extreme example. But let's take something incredibly simple. Right? You've had a hard day. You go home. You're frustrated. Work's been a bear. The home is a bear. And you think, if I can just make it till the kids are down and turn on the TV and the Spirit whispers in your ear, No, prayer will do you more good. Really, you need to learn to worship in the midst of this frustration. And real peace only comes from God. And you say, yeah, that's probably true. I'll take that up tomorrow. Right now, I really need to relax. And the television makes me feel more relaxed than God does. I feel like the TV delivers in a more substantive way than does Yahweh. And so in that small decision, you've gone down a road of polytheism. That very moment you have said, God, yeah, despite these promises, and I know my inclination to, should be to worship you, but instead I'm going to devote to something else. Now, listen, there's nothing wrong with entertainment. But if your entertainment becomes such that you devote more time to it than God, or if engaging entertainment becomes more important to you than God, you think you find more peace in entertainment than you do in God, then you have a very big problem. Right? You are making a down payment. You're paying for those services. And you say, here is an hour or two or three of my time. Friends, in the ancient world, that's called a sacrifice. So you sacrifice to the God of entertainment rather than to Yahweh. Right? We haven't stopped being tempted by polytheism. We've just become more sophisticated and ceased to use some of the same language. So these are the things that bear down on us, but they were also what what bore down on Hannah. How easy it would be to be persuaded by Penina. Hannah, I know you think you're the favored one, but aren't children a blessing from the Lord? Where are your kids? Who is blessed here? Hannah knows that her only hope is in the one true God. And she trusts that God beyond all Evidence to the contrary. Year by year, she has gone up to the temple or to the tabernacle. Year by year, she has made her prayer. What is the nature of Hannah's prayer? Elkanah takes his family regularly up to Shiloh. 
There's a center for worship. Eli the priest is there. His sons are also ministering. And there Hannah would make particularly particular appeal uh, to God for a child. And in verse 10, notice, notice the uh, description of how she prays. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. This isn't, this isn't a prayer of false righteousness. Right? Oh God, I trust you no matter what. I know you will provide when our heart says otherwise. And it's not a prayer of anger. Lord, please make Penina's womb drier than a raisin. Right? It's just simply her bearing her soul in complete honesty before God. Weeping, filled with bitterness and distress, anguishing over her lack of a child. But what is remarkable in the midst of her prayer is that Hannah says, God, if you give me the thing that I most desire, I will give it right back to you. Her longing to be a mother, to have a son, says, yes, you deliver, you give this to me, I will commit him to you all his days, I will make him a Nazarite. Right. The Nazarites were a group of Israelites who took special, uh, made special promises to devote themselves to the Lord. They would uh, avoid alcohol. They would never let a razor touch their head. They wouldn't come into contact with a dead body. And of, of the biblical story, there are three that are highlighted. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. And here, it's unprecedented. You know, there, typically someone took the Nazarite vow upon themselves, but here, well, perhaps, somewhat debated, but here, Hannah just goes and says, I'm committing him to the Lord. This is what is going to be his story if you give me this child. And so she recognizes that what she desires most, if given to her, still will be devoted to God. It's almost as if she fears God is saying, you know, if I give you what you most want, then that's just going to pull you away from me. And Hannah says, no, I most want you, but please give me a child, and the child will be yours. And think about what that meant for Hannah. You know, perhaps we look back on this with a bit of Western romanticism that isn't unfounded, but Hannah, the reality for Hannah, what this means for her is, is... Once the child is weaned, and she takes Samuel and drops him off to be raised by Eli and the priesthood, is she'll see him once a year. She won't watch him. You know, all of the joys of motherhood, all of the intimacy of raising a son and watching him grow will be reduced to seeing him and saying, My, how you've grown. I brought a new set of clothes for you. It's a, it's an amazing sacrifice. It's an amazing willingness to depart with what she desires most, should God provide it. And so they leave the temple, and Eli knows Hannah, and Hannah conceives, and she gives birth to Samuel, right? naming him this idea that God has heard my request and has answered. As the child the Lord has given to me. And uh, she erupts as she goes to present Eli once he's weaned, or Samuel, once he's weaned to Eli, to present him. Uh, she erupts in the song of praise. Which is not the typical song of praise that you would expect from a mother who's been blessed with fertility. Right? You might think, thanks for this child, God. May he grow up to be a man of you and honor you. Hannah sings this song that's huge. It's cosmic in scope. It, it sees well beyond 
simply the birth of a child from her womb. And Hannah's praise, this last portion of the sermon, has much to teach us about what it means to be caught up in God's story. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Hannah sings, I rejoice in your salvation. Is she referring only to the birth of Samuel or to something greater? In 2.5, Hannah begins to describe radical social upheaval. The mighty will be helpless, the feeble will be strong, the rich will be hungry, the hungry will be full, the barren will bear many, those of many children will be forlorn. And Hannah continues to describe this massive social upheaval and the defeat of God's enemies. Right Now remember, what mother at the birth of their child is thinking, is thinking these kinds of thoughts or writing these kinds of things? Thank you. My child means the upheaval of society. My child means the defeat of God's enemies. My child ultimately means that the king is coming. Remarkable prophecy in the midst of her song. And in verse 10, it says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the power of His anointed. And it begins exalting God because He's lifted her up. He's made her strong. He's, he's lifted her horn, so to speak, which is this notion of, uh, of making her strong, of coming behind her strength. But it ends with her celebrating the strength that is given to a king the power that is given to the one who is anointed. In Hebrew, the Messiah, and in Greek, the Christ. Now, who knows if Hannah understood what she was articulating. Perhaps she knew that something special was happening in Samuel, but that Samuel would lead to David, and David would lead to Christ. Who knows? And yet, this is the story that she is participating in, not only by trusting in God and praying for a child, but then by taking that child and devoting that child to the Lord. Samuel will take Eli's spot and become the priest of God. So we consider Hannah's story. We consider the joy that she celebrates. She's praising God at the end of at the at the end of this ordeal. She's been given a child and she gives the child to God and she sings this praise. We have to realize that her praise didn't exist in the birth of a child alone. Right, if that were the case, then in giving up the child, she would be distraught. But instead, she exalts in the Lord, and you realize that Hannah's joy is bound up in the larger story that is unfolding around her. It is bound up in the joy of her finding her story in the midst of God's story. And if that means that she gives up the thing that she most desires, she says, okay, because I know what will come of this. I know that God will work great things and He will lift up the oppressed and He will give a king and the king will lead us in righteousness and initially that king will be David. Hannah's story begins with weeping and it ends with singing. And it ends with singing not only because she's been given a child. It ends with singing because she believes that that child is part of a much larger story in which God affects His salvation. All of us engage times of weeping. All of us engage times of great disappointment with God and frustration when He doesn't seem to be delivering on His promises. There is one way for that weeping 
to end in singing no matter what. And it is for your story to be found in God's story. For the things that you desire, for the things that you want, not to be in and of themselves for you and for your pleasure, but for them to be devoted back to God and to be bound up in His story. Because as His story unfolds, the glory of Christ unfolds. And as the glory of Christ unfolds, it means that all of God's enemies are defeated. It means that all of the sad things of this world as a result of sin are undone and come untrue. Do you want your weeping to be turned into singing this morning? We must learn from Hannah and find our story bound up in the stories of God's revelation, particularly His revelation of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for, indeed, on this Mother's Day, we thank You for a woman like Hannah, a woman who put off being a mother, but remained faithful to You until You should bring that about. And even in the midst of the fulfillment of her dreams, only understanding the fulfillment of those dreams as they furthered and participated in Your story. Forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for so often considering the fulfillment of dreams to be the work of our hands. To consider the fulfillment of our dreams something that we should delight and take pleasure in. Something that we are so reluctant to give back to You. Fools we are, Father. For all good things come from Your hand. And Hannah knew this in ways that we, we aspire to know it. So I pray that You would raise us in faith. That You would grow us up and mature us and that even as we receive that which we most, might, might most desire, those things that we receive, we would understand to be from Your hand and to hold them with an open hand and to make sure that all of the gifts that we receive are indeed given to You that the story of Christ might unfold. We thank You for this great privilege. We thank You that You are the God who turns weeping into dancing. And pray that as we surrender that which has been entrusted to us, that we might know more singing. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.